Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Eric Bergman. Eric, thank you very much for coming on. Before we get into this episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter, at BettingPod, and check out the website, businessofbetting.com. Guest suggestions are much appreciated. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Eric Bergman. Eric, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me, Jake. I'm happy to be here. Eric, you're the Swedish founder of Katana Media, and uh, things have changed for you in the last couple of years. But before we get to that, do you want to just start with your background for those listeners who aren't aware of, of your past? Yeah, sure. So whenever I talk about my, my past, I like to start from the very beginning. <laughs> so when I was a kid, I just I was the one playing with Legos all the time. I was building stuff. I was trying to stop the stream with sticks and leaves and whatnot. And I just loved building things. And that kept on going with me for through school and through everything else. And through whenever I could, I started building things. And then I started building companies. And that's how I got started, basically. So I started doing building what became Katina Media, more or less during school. at least the first year after school. So I was 19 years old or something. And that company grew into to be a stock listed company on the stock exchange in Stockholm in 2016. So it's been a fun journey up until there. So yeah, let's go back before Katina. When you were studying you know, high school, university, what were you focusing on? What was your skill set? What type of tools did you have that were obviously helpful in building a company? Uh, I think the first and uh, foremost was just a passion of building things. I don't know if I was super talented at anything. I wasn't the best kid in in school. I was passionately curious, so I wanted to learn all things all the time. I was one of these kids who didn't raise my hand, but instead just spoke out loud, which wasn't always a good thing, but it's a good entrepreneurial skill, I guess. Um, so the first business we did was... Well, the first thing we did was we, we tried to create a company that was supposed to print uh, on the on underwear. You can write anything on the you know the elastics, the top of boxer shorts. You could write. You, you should be able to print whatever you wanted to. And if that was, I am the king, or single, or ten inches, or what, <laughs> whatever you wanted to put there, you were supposed to put there, and. Yeah. How, how well do you think this business idea turned out? Well, uh, probably not great, but I'm I'm <laughs> not sure. Uh, it lasted for about two weeks. Uh, <laughs> so we never even got to a company with it. So, well, I guess one of the skill sets I learned was try things and fail fast. <laughs> yep. Yep. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about the affiliate business uh, largely today, and I want to 
go back to the start of Catania. What was the plan? Did you have a plan at that time, or were you just, like you mentioned, just starting to build stuff and, and see what stuck? So the plan was basically survival. That's how we got there. The first real company we built was uh, a web design agency focusing on small companies in my, my hometown in Sweden. So we helped hairdressers, we helped uh, a printing shop, we helped some shoe stores to kind of set up their first websites. And we couldn't make a living out of it. It was a shitty business model, shitty idea. Uh, it's really hard to make business with with small business owners because they hold their money very hard and they have a lot of demands. So we learned that the hard way. And we just basically needed a way to pay the bills. So we started doing affiliate sites with the time we had that wasn't with customers. And after about a year, we had made a thousand euros with our first affiliate websites. And it turned out like, hey, maybe this is where we should focus our time. If we can make a thousand euros just having fun with this, playing around, not deal, needing to deal with sales and talking to clients and having people who are don't want to pay or whatnot. We could just do that. So it was more by accident than uh, than by choice, actually. Had you had any exposure to the gaming industry or casinos, online casinos, or any other type of, of gambling? Yes, I uh, I started playing poker when I was 17, 16, 17. So the poker, so I'm born 88. So in 2004 or something, I was 16 years old and I started playing poker. That's when poker really hit at least Sweden. I'm not sure it was in the US back then, but so poker became really big. We started playing on all our, actually all physics class and all maths classes in in school because our teacher didn't care what we were doing. And between all classes and everything else, we were a bunch of guys playing all the time. And then I started playing online when I was 17, started with these free tournaments. And I remember when I won <laughs> my first big win. And I say big because it was big to me, not because it was big to anyone else. Mm-hmm. I won $7. It was the happiest day of my life. <laughs> And a couple of days later, I sent a print screen to Christopher, my friend, when I had $13 in my poker wallet. And he still shows that picture to me every now and then because I was so proud of my $13 back then. That's that's happiness, my friend. Yeah, that's happiness. That's, that's pure happiness. It symbolized something much bigger. Yeah, so I, I started playing poker a lot when I was... 17, 18, and I got really good. Uh, so I made a living out of that on the side of, bef- before the business even took off, I made a living playing poker rather than anything else. So for two, three years, I played professionally or what you want to call it. Didn't have many expenses. I was living with my parents. So it was quite easy to survive professionally. Um, and that got me into the gaming industry and that got me into affiliation. Then, So I started with poker affiliations and, and rake back deals uh, back then. So that's how it started. How did those poker affiliations and rake back deals work back then? Okay, so as a professional poker player, you pay somewhere between two and $10,000 a month in, in rake and in fees. And with a rake back deal means that you can get get parts of this back and often around 50%. So you get a 50% discount for playing so much. So 
I got these deals for myself to start with. And then I started talking to my friends who played a lot of poker and people I met at tournaments and stuff. And they wanted rate back deals as well. So I had a deal with uh, with a poker client that gave me 55% of, of the fees. So I gave the player back uh, 50% and I kept five. So I started talking to people in forums over MSN. MSN was my biggest recruitment channel and tournaments and wherever I could find it offering these kinds of deals. So I didn't have a website. It was all just basically affiliate via networking. And thanks to being a poker player myself, it was easy to find other poker players. Were many people doing that type of thing back then or was it just you accepted the rake or the fees at what they were? Yeah, I'd say that all people who played professionally had somewhat of an affiliate deal, but there were very few who were actual affiliates because it was a very big advantage of scale. So the, the more traffic you could bring in, the higher deal you could have. So if you were really big, you could have, let's say, 60%. And that meant that you could give someone else 55% and still keep 5% for yourself. So it was very hard to compete with someone who had 60 if you were on 40. Because, well, why would someone work with you for less than 40 if they could get 55 elsewhere? So the economics of scale became important. So there were quite a few people actually generated these deals, at least in in my sphere of people. Uh, but all the players used those deals. And how long did you do that for? Was that a, an ongoing thing for a number of years or was it something that you did on a small scale and then you flipped over and started Catania? Uh, I did it on a small scale for... Uh, it, it was never very big. I mean, I think that I'm, at the best I made $5,000 a month or something like that, $10,000 a month, meaning that. And I kept doing that f- for a couple of years within in Katina as well because it was easy and these poker players became my friends. So I just got them deals in different places. So I could just send them around. But it was never it was never a structured business in any way. It was way more of a hobby that I enjoyed doing and that just happened rather than me having a big plan with it. So Katina, it was the same thing with Katina. For the first three years, that was a hobby. We just built built these affiliate sites, played around with it, learned from it. First year, we made a thousand euros. Second year, we made maybe 10,000 euros. And third year, maybe 30,000 euros or something. So it wasn't... And that split two ways. So it it took some time before it became a business. So take me through what you were actually doing in those, let's say, the first three years where you might have had 50,000 euros or $50,000 in in revenues. What, at a very basic level, is the affiliate business that you created? So the first website we created that kind of took off, that turned us into a company, was called probabingo.se, which means try bingo uh, in Swedish. So it was a Swedish website. This was, we started this in 2007, I think, maybe eight, 2008. And basically what we did was that we copied whatever other bingo affiliate sites out there were doing. We created a list of the bonuses you can find. We... did the SEO research like, okay, Swedish bingo websites are something they're looking for. New bingo bonuses was something people were looking for. 
So we, we wrote content about this. We found affiliate deals. We put them in there. And we started doing whatever we could to get links to these sites. So links help out a lot for the SEO and makes basically the website that has the best links to it will be the one that ranks highest up in Google. So Google counts links as votes in a sense. So we had this website, but we had no links and no idea how to get them. So once again, uh, I went into networking mode on forums and stuff using a similar mindset as I had with affiliation. I actually haven't thought about it as those things being very connected until this very moment. <laughs> but basically the same way I did for getting these poker rakeback deals to people, I did to find people who had websites and could link to us. So we, we traded links with other, we link to you if you link to us. I wrote guest blog posts on their blogs about affiliation or things like that. And in a sense, that's also what I'm doing right now, doing a podcast here and I can be able to talk about my stuff doing so. So it's at the end of the day, it's all about, well, it's not a big part about it is about networking. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. And when you're building Try Lotto, do you decide to build five different versions or 10 or 20 or how does it evolve from more than one site to a, a number of different sites? For a long time, it was only one site. And then we went from one site to a lot of sites very quickly. Uh, so back then, uh, the domain name was very, very important. So Try Bingo wasn't a very good domain name because people didn't really look to Try Bingo. It would have been much better to have the bingo name bingosites.se, for example, or bingobonus.se. So when we realized this, that the name was so important, we started probably 15 uh, clones of our first website within a couple of months that was very, very niche towards a specific keyword. So it was, for example, Swedish bingo sites.se or bingo with no deposit.se. So the Swedish equivalents of these and made them very very simple. Everything used the same WordPress temp uh, template. They looked very much alike. There was a difference in colors and stuff. But they all had this very specific niche that they were going for, a narrow keyword range. So I want to talk a little bit about SEO. It sounds like that's an important part of it, and it's a part that a lot of people probably don't know a lot about behind the wall, what actually happens. I think a lot of people can probably buy a domain name and set up a WordPress, but there's obviously critical components to it that they're not aware of. Take us through your approach to SEO, if you don't mind. Okay, so the absolute first basic of SEO is that it's search engine optimization, which is basically how to rank high up in Google. And it's split up in two things, uh, usually referred to as on-page and off-page SEO. So on-page is whatever it is that you're doing on your own website. And there are very good guides for how to do this. If you want to do this, just Google on-page SEO test, and you can try your own website for whatever keyword it is that you want to rank for. So by starting there, it's simple. You need to have the right headline. You need to put things in text, not just in videos or in some fancy functionalities because Google can only read text or Google reads text much better than they read everything else. So that's the first thing that we did. Uh, the second thing that we did is off-page SEO, which then is basically links. And this has changed a bit over time. 
I would still argue that links is a very big and important part of this. And if you manage to get the on-page and the off-page links, well, you're going to get a long way. So then it's all about how to get links. One way of doing that is being a guest on podcasts, for example, where you will talk about your own projects, your websites, your whatever it is that you're doing. So you're giving away your time and your content. And in regards, you can get exposure and, and links. Another way of doing it is just talking to people on forums, finding other people at websites, see if you can help them one way or another. It's still common to pay for links. So just buy some buy links. You pay someone who has a blog, write about me. This is not according to Google web uh, guidelines. So it's not recommended to do it still. Pretty much everyone everyone does it who is in the affiliate space, I would say. So these different things uh, add into SEO. So I'm just curious the <clears throat> when it's not recommended by Google to essentially ask someone else to write a blog for you, what is the value in that? Is it just having your name, your product, your website, the domain, everything related to your site on as many places on the web as possible? The very easy and short answer would be yes. The long and a bit more complicated answer would be no. So you want your links and your exposure on good websites. So for example, uh, your podcast website would not benefit from being linked to from weird porn sites in Russia. That would just be bad for you. So not in as many places as possible. But if any podcast website would link to you, that would more or less always be good. So the more of the podcasts that you can get linking to your podcast would be good. The bigger the podcasts and the better, the higher ranking they already are in Google, the more is one of those links worth to you. So if you would get a link from Tim Ferriss show and his website, that would be worth more than probably a hundred or even a thousand links from smaller podcasts. But obviously it's, equally hard to get that one, probably a hundred or a thousand times harder to get on that one. So you essentially need a good network of links and references and mentions all across good websites or good domains across the web. Is that fair to say? Yeah. The the tougher the keyword you want to rank for, the more exposure and authority from other sites you will need. So if you want to rank on a keyword like sports betting podcast, it's probably quite easy because there aren't that many podcasts out there about sports betting or at least the betting industry podcast, which is even a smaller niche. However, if you would want to work rank for just podcast, that's going to be really, really hard because you're going to compete with iTunes, for example. Or if you want to compare, rank on the word sports betting then or betting, that's going to be really, really hard because you're competing with Bet365 and those giants. So the, the, bigger, the bigger the audience is for a keyword and the more money it is in that keyword, the harder it will be. So one of the advices I usually give to people who want to start out with these things and want to do something is to start with a niche that is very, very small because it will be much easier to reach that audience. It will be very hard to reach a wide audience on a big term. But people tend to very naturally say, yeah, but I want to be the number one on sports betting. It's like, yeah, I want to walk on the moon, but it's a lot of work. Yeah. So do you, you mentioned earlier you like to build things. Do you build everything based on this idea of 
having the links and the references and the, the good network online? Well, it's a good question. When I say build things, I mean build everything in my life from relationships to Lego to everything else. And I don't have much networking in my Lego skills, <laughs> so it doesn't apply to everything. But it's definitely a big part of any online project I would do has a strong connection to networking and SEO with it. And I think I'm passionate about SEO because whatever you do get measurable results in a sense. You're always on a top list. The rankings is a top list. You can see if you're climbing or if you're still in the same spot. So I'm attracted to that way of working where I can see I'm competing against an algorithm and I'm competing against other people trying to beat the same algorithm, So which is Google's search result. So doing that and having networking as an essential part of that is something that's very appealing to me. So I'm keeping that involved with whatever I'm doing. So take me through your conversations with bookmakers or casinos or lottos or whoever it might be. What what type of things do you talk to them about? Is it a very short conversation and they give you a they give you a code or they give you um, something to put on your site that links back to them? Or is it pretty complicated and there's in-depth discussions and you really have a, a decent strategy in place to try and drive traffic their way? Most of the time, it's it's a very simple conversation. It's actually a very good question because it's probably very unclear to most people how that would work. Uh, but the thing is that all of the betting companies have already structures in place to work with affiliates and partners. So it's, it's not like you need to sell them something or have a long process to get to be a partner. You can actually just sign up more or less agree to terms and conditions and pretty much everyone is accepted and it's very easy to get started. So unless you want to have a long conversation with them and want to talk a lot about things, you don't even need to talk to them at all. They will just approve you and you can start marketing. What's good with talking more about them is that you will get a higher percentage of the revenues if you are good at communicating and promising and delivering on those promises. So usually you start out on a low commission percentage wise and all of these operators advertise and give you a lower commission than you can get with pretty much one email. So you can start out on 20% and if you just send them one email and say, hey, I want this, they will give you 30% from day one. It's just how the business works. It's kind of, it's like buying something on the streets in Thailand. The first price they give you is never the last price. And it's very easy to get that one lowered. And that's pretty much how the structure is with the gaming company. So I highly recommend anyone who wants to do this to just set up an account, get started, but also negotiate at least a little bit. Because even if you don't think you have any negotiation power, you do. So take us through some of the different commercial models that you've seen. Is it all pretty simple and it's a fixed fee or is it you know revenue shares or what are the different approaches that are taken across the industry? I think that what's what's most unique with the uh, uh, with the betting industry is the revenue share model, which is very rare elsewhere because you actually get a commission on a player on late, on a lifetime basis. So if I generate Jake, you as a client to Bet365, for example, I will get a lifetime commission on whatever revenue you generate to Bet365. 
And this is the most common and most standardized uh, commission that you get. And it's brilliant for the affiliate because you can get a lifetime share on a client that you generate. And it's brilliant for the operator or the game gambling company because they don't have to take any risk whatsoever. If you don't deliver any players, they're not paying you anything. If you deliver a lot of players, but those players don't generate a lot of money, they will not pay you much. So they are not taking more or less any risk. And that's why they're very happy to work with anyone. You don't need to sell them your product products because if you don't make the money, they are not going to pay you. So that's revenue share. That's the most common one. And then there is CPA, which stands for cost per acquisition. And that's a standard fee that the operator will pay the affiliate. So the gambling company will pay their partner per new client generated that actually deposit money. And this is usually somewhere around 200 euros, $200, give or take. It can be all the way up to a thousand, depending on what kind of traffic it is, but it's common with $200. So if they then send you as a player and you deposit $10, I still get $200. But if you come and you deposit $20,000, I still only get $200. So that's a, a different fee where you get paid very quickly. You, as, a, as a, an affiliate, you take very little risk. You can make a lot of money quickly. But on the other hand, you will not be able to benefit if you send a very big player. So those are the two absolute main ones. There are flat fees. There are they're being paid just for exposure and these kind of things as well. But that's not where you start if you begin as a new affiliate. What was your preferred approach or what's generally in the industry the best approach if you're thinking, I suppose if you're thinking longer term, it's probably revenue share, right? Yes, longer term, it's, it's revenue share for sure. At least if you believe in your traffic and you believe what you're doing. One of the downsides with revenue share is that you don't have any control so if you have sent a thousand players to, let's say, Bet365, for example, and then for one reason or another, you're not sending more traffic, maybe you get a better deal somewhere else, or maybe you get penalized by Google so your website doesn't rank anymore, then you have lost all your negotiation power because most likely, at least not a serious company like Bet365, they're still going to keep paying you but less serious people out there might not because if you're not sending new traffic and new players, they might be less eager to pay you for the old traffic that you did last year. Uh, and you're, you're simply being ending, end up in a tricky spot. But most of the time I would say revenue share is, is better, but it forces you to trust whoever you're working with and it's not always sure you want that. Is there ever an ethical question with respect to taking a percentage of players' losses in the online gaming industry or sports betting industry? Yeah, I, I'm thinking a lot about these things. I, I, if I was in charge, I would not let the gaming industry exist. Uh, there's definitely an ethical aspect of it, and it creates a lot of harm out there. But now it does exist, and you could argue that it's everyone's free will. Most people can... Uh, can deal with this uh, in a good way. Most people play for a couple of hundred euros or dollars per month rather than anything else. And probably 98% or I'm just throwing a number out there does not have a problem. And 2% does. Uh, so it's, it's tricky to, to deal with all these things. I definitely think a lot about it and it disturbs me in a sense. 
I would probably, if I, if it wasn't for the fact that I just ended up in this industry, I loved poker. I loved all the things doing it. I learned so much about it and I feel that I'm, I'm good at it and I want to make a difference from doing so. I would be in another industry just because of the ethical aspects. Yeah, and I don't think it's as simple as that either. I think obviously with the rake back, it sounds like you're helping every player to regain a percentage of the rake fees that they're paying. And then other instances, you know, if, if it's a, a fixed fee amount, you're not necessarily benefiting from someone losing. You could probably hope that they win lots of money from Bet365 if you're getting a, a fixed fee to send them there. But then there's obviously certain circumstances where you're benefiting from player losses. But on the flip side of that, what are the main benefits as an affiliate that, you know, your customers that are coming to your website are going to see or or benefit from? Is there a long list of things that it it makes it beneficial for them to come to your site as well? So at the moment, I don't have any affiliate websites generating revenues, but Katina Media, where the company that we spoke about before has a lot of them. And the biggest one is called askgamblers.com. And one of the main uh, things with Ask Gamblers is that it's kind of a customer support for all casinos in one place. So if you are having a problem and you feel mistreated, we have more or less a jury system or whatever you want to call it, where you can send in your, uh, your case to us like, okay, this uh, gambling company told me I was going to get this bonus and I didn't. Or I won a lot of money, but now they won't pay me. So a situation like that. And then they send us print screens and they send us the terms and conditions and all of these things. And then we have people who are looking at this and we will then do, uh, well, judge it from our end and say, if do we believe that the player is right or the, the gambling company is right? And if we think that the gambling company uh, is wrong and the player is right, we bring this up with the gambling company and they are then asked to send in their evidence and we will look at it both ways. And if we still consider uh, the player to be right and the gambling company not to be right, we advise the gambling company to still pay. And if they decide not to, it will be shown on our website that we don't trust whatever company it's called .com. And over the course of the last years, I think we're up to $20 million or something like that in player disputes that has been solved that way. So we, we help the players to get back their money from, from casinos or gambling companies when they are being treated unfairly. So that's one of the main benefits from using a site like askgamblers.com. And then the other ones where there's comparisons for sign-up bonuses or there's other promotions that you're explaining or talking about and, and generally giving sports bettors or online casino players, you know, a full suite of options. I guess that's another benefit. Yeah, definitely. That's that's the most common one. That's like pretty much all the, the affiliate websites are doing. That's what we were doing already with this Try Bingo website that I mentioned before. So the most common thing is basically here are your alternatives these are the various bonus they're offering. These are the various games they're offering, payment methods, withdrawal options, and so forth, so that our player here, Jake, can easily make a decision and play where he wants to. So that's what all of our sites offer, I would say. And 
pretty much all the other sites out there as well. So that's the benefit of using an affiliate site in general. Take me through the progression in the industry. I know most people will understand that advertising budgets across certainly sports betting has boomed over the last decade or more. How has that impacted something like, you know, your time at Catania? Take us through that. Yeah, well, I think that the biggest change... Okay, we can start by answering that question. Then I can answer the the biggest change of it. So the marketing budgets uh, have changed in a way that they spend so much more money on TV marketing, which means that more people are Googling and searching for things and more people are finding our websites. So that's, I would say, is the main part of the gambling company's budgets being bigger. And then obviously we can get paid more. But since it's percentage based, most of it is still fairly similar to what it used to be. It has changed somewhat. But the biggest change is from how big the industry has become thanks to the the marketing budgets. Um, Yeah, I would say that's been the biggest change. So they're essentially helping you do your own job. Yeah, in a way, uh, that's what happens. So if you're going to be a search based affiliate or starting any business that would be based on search there needs to be a a search behavior so if you're starting a website about uh, sports betting there will already be millions of people looking for sports betting so that's a great way of of doing that if you however are going to start a business about pink socks with crocodiles on them and that's your idea then no one is going to be looking for that because no one knows that pink socks with crocodiles exist so what happened in the gaming industry is that thanks to all the advertising more and more people know that gambling or casino or betting uh, exists which means more and more people will search and we will just be easier and easier to find it would be similar to thinking that you have a uh, a shop on a on a street in your hometown And then the people walking by you is the people Googling for things. And most days there's not that many people walking by you. But if someone else starts spending a lot of marketing in the the stores and stuff around you, a lot more people will come to walk on your street. And they will just happen to walk by your door, even though you didn't pay for the campaigns or the marketing. And that's just great for you. So there will be more people basically walking by where you are. So tell me, why doesn't, everyone and anyone start building their own affiliate websites. Is there a, a barrier to entry? Is there something that makes it very, very difficult? Or is it just something that people aren't fully aware of necessarily and don't go out and start it? I think the latter is the main reason. People are not aware of that this industry exists, really. Uh, and I think the reason for that is that it's not something that is huge in media or people don't talk about it this way. You can look at hotels.com. That's an affiliate as well, but it's not really spoke about as an affiliate. So people don't really think about it as an affiliate. When you see hotels.com, it's this huge company. And obviously there is huge barriers to build something like that. But to start a small affiliate business, I'd say it's probably one of the lowest barriers there is to start any business. You need a domain name. And to be honest, you don't even need a domain name. You could potentially do it on a free site like a WordPress or a blogger or something. And then you just need your own time. So I don't think that we would have started if there was a barrier entry. We didn't have any money when we started. We just had our time and we thought it was fun. So we paid $10 for a domain name and then we got started. 
So then the rest is time, knowledge, and perseverance. And you need a lot more perseverance today than you did 10 years ago when I started because it's obviously more competition. A lot more people have started now than back then. But it's still a fairly... If I would choose any industry to get in, in today, I would still choose affiliation because it's it's brilliant. It's very low barrier of entry and still a very big upside. And someone else does most of the job. And with that, I mean that the gaming companies in this case, they do the customer support. They do all of these marketing. They have all the expensive finance licenses and, and stuff like that. They do all the transaction. They do all of these things. As an affiliate, all you need is a website with information cl sending clicks. Uh, and then you'll get a big piece of the payment or the money. So someone else does pretty much all of the job. Sounds pretty good, actually. <laughs> it is pretty good. can highly recommend it. So, uh, weird question for you. What makes an affiliate site fail or what makes it unsuccessful? Is there a couple of things or is it is it more about the SEO? It's more about the tech and the build out and, and how it looks? It's a good question. It, it can be all of the things you mentioned and it can be just bad luck. Most affiliates are very dependent on Google and Google is very unpredictable. Sometimes it's very predictable and a lot of times it's very unpredictable. I've been working with search for 10, 12 years, and I still don't understand it. Some, uh, some of the time, I don't understand it at all. A website that I think really should be ranking for all of the parameters I'm looking at might not rank at all. And a website that I really think shouldn't be ranking still ranks at the top for years. So bad luck, I would say, is, is a very big part of it. Uh, Perseverance is the second one. The, the more patience you have, the harder you work over time, the more likely it is that you will succeed. And I believe that for pretty much all projects that anyone starts, the main reason for them failing is that they get bored. They don't see results within the first three or six months. So then they stop. I think that out of the people who have been running an affiliate site for more than two years, most of them have succeeded, but they most likely given up within two years if they didn't succeed because then it's not fun anymore. How are the affiliate businesses treated around the world? And I know you've probably been in some or many of the jurisdictions. Are they left alone and they're just a uh, ancillary third party to the gaming business? Or are there other areas where you might be more involved and have to go through the regulatory process, for example? There are some areas where there is a regulatory purpose, uh, process. Uh, in uh, New Jersey, for example, there is a regulatory process for an affiliate. But in general, it's very smooth sailing. There are very few things you need to worry about as an affiliate, especially if you're an affiliate in some other industry than gambling. If you're in hotels or business cards or these kind of things where there's no then you will be completely smooth sailing. There is never any regulatory stuff at all. So what were some of the challenges or missteps that happened throughout the evolution of Katena? Do you want to take us through one or two things that stand out from your time that you know you learn a lesson from? Missteps. Yeah, sure. It's from the mistakes that you learn, they say. <laughs> so I think that we've had more or less the same problems as all other businesses have. Uh, the biggest this actually struck me as very interesting in the last couple of years, how similar all companies are. That there are more things that, in my experience, 
that tie companies together than it is that separates them. Regardless if I'm running a casino affiliate business and you're running a garbage collection business, it's very likely that my biggest problems will be with the staff and your biggest problem will be with the staff. It's people, it's emotion, it's not always rational behaviors. So that's been the biggest challenges. Same thing goes for everything that has to do with money. Money, or once again, that goes into emotions and unrational behaviors. And people don't want to pay. People don't want to pay on time. Salaries is tricky. So it's first and foremost is how similar all businesses are when I'm talking to friends around companies. To, looking back and seeing some defining learning experiences, I'd say that our, our biggest uh, problem was that we tried to grow too quickly. We were in a rush to I don't know what. And I think that's very common. I think that when I'm talking to entrepreneurs or people who run a business, everyone is so focused on growth and so focused on growth in terms of financial numbers, where health and joy for everyone involved would be far more important to think about, but that's so hard to, to look at. How do you measure joy or health in a number? Well, you don't. How do you measure money in a number? Well, that's the only thing you do. So what we didn't do was that we didn't focus on health. And that meant that Emil, who I started the company with, he got completely burned out after a few years. And it would take him two, three years to even recover. He didn't sleep for weeks. He was in, in really bad shape. And the only, I mean, it's one thing if you're in bad shape, if you're fighting for your company's survival, then it makes sense. It's basically, it makes sense to go to war if you're fighting for your family's survival. When you're fighting for growth, if you're already doing financially well, then that's like going to war to conquer some other nation that you have nothing to do with anyway. It's just completely meaningless and doesn't serve a big purpose. And that's what we were doing. We were trying to conquer growth and make even more money than we that we didn't need. And that almost cost him his life. And it's, I was so close to being completely burned out as well. I, I didn't sleep properly. I didn't eat properly. I was just working and Whenever I was outside of the office and people asked me about work, I I started crying. I was yeah, I was so tired for a few years there. I remember when my my parents called me and asked, like, okay, Eric, how are you? We're worried. And my my answer was like, I'm bad. I really don't want to talk about it. And at this stage, our company was making hundreds of thousands of euros in profit each month and we were only chasing growth for no other purpose than our own egos or bigger wallets or whatever it was and we put our health at stake to make that happen so yeah i would say that's the biggest mistake we did push ourselves too hard and sure financially it turned out well health wise uh, not so much and we might have to pay that bill sometime in the future and, I don't know, get a heart attack uh, earlier than we would have done otherwise. I don't know. Well, hopefully not. And it might be a good time now to talk about great.com and maybe tell us why you started it and, and how it sort of started out for you. 
Yeah, that's, that's a good shift. Well done, host. <laughs> uh, yeah, so two years ago, roughly, I left Katina Media. Uh, so I haven't been involved in the company since then. I'm still a shareholder. I'm still involved in some minor things, but more or less nothing. And one of the main, well, the main reason was that I stopped loving it. And that came from working too hard, getting too far away from the actual process of building things, which got me there, and too much into investors and politics. So stepping away from it, I actually got quite depressed. I didn't know what I wanted to do now. I had this feeling that I'd lost meaning or purpose. I, I had all this money and I've been chasing those, that money all my life. And now my question was, okay, now what? So on the day on the, of our IPO when we went public, I made $15 million. I was in euphoria. I was so happy. I, I had everything I ever wished for and it was just energy jumping around. But how long does that feeling last? For me, it lasts for, I think it lasts for about two weeks. And then things got back to normal. I still had fights with my girlfriend. They didn't get immediately solved. I, I remember I got a cold, like really sick. Like, yeah, my immune system didn't care that I had money. And all of these other issues came up and suddenly it's like, what the fuck? I've been chasing this dream all my life and it didn't solve all my problems. I thought that's what capitalism was all about, solving my problems with money. And it didn't happen. So I got pissed. No, I didn't get pissed. I got sad, I would say. And I was in that place for quite some time and started looking for, for a bigger purpose. And that purpose became great. And great will be more or less the same thing as I've been doing before. But instead of focusing on making as much money as possible, we will focus on doing the most possible good. And that will be part of it will be by making as much money as possible, but giving all of that money away. So it will serve a bigger purpose. And it will also be about building a project that can last for 50 years and then I want to do for 50 years without getting burned out from it. So yeah, that's the short version of what great will be, or at least how we ended up there. And how's it going so far? It's going very well. Uh, we, uh, we started slowly last year. In many ways, we're still doing things very, very slowly in terms of developing a commercial product. What we're doing right now is focusing on building a recruitment platform. So I have a lot of crazy ideas of how I think that companies should be run and that they're not being run. And now I just want to be good at getting those ideas out there for people to get very interested in them and want to join the project. So what's the best way for people that are interested? And I, I'm sure a lot of people who are listening are fascinated by not only your story, but your business career and, and certainly what's next with great.com. What's the best way for them to 
find out more information. I know there's a podcast already out there and I know there's some information online, but what do you suggest in the next three, six, 12 months to, for them to expect to come down the line? Yeah, well, for anyone who's interested, just visit great.com and there is all kinds of information about what's going on and more and more things coming up all the time. What we are focusing on now, so one of these somewhat crazy ideas we have is that we want to go on extreme transparency, meaning that we want people to be able to see our meetings online. We want to share our salaries so everyone can see who does what and who earns what. We want to share our entire business plan because best case scenario, someone copies it and starts a company to give away all their money. I'm more than happy to inspire that and give away our ideas. So what we're doing now is a lot of different podcasts where we're going to share pretty much everything we're talking about. Our last uh, podcast call was about what titles we will use in the company and why we will use those titles, what salaries everyone earns and how we will deal with social security fees and stuff in different countries because it's very, very different how much you need to pay someone for a certain salary in Sweden and how much you need to pay someone in, for example, the US where it's the systems are completely different. So all of these kind of information is something that we're looking to share and hopefully be able to inspire other organizations to do similar things. Sounds very, very interesting. I, I'm looking forward to tracking the progress uh, as it comes. So one last question for you, Eric. How do you look back on your last, let's say, 15 years working you know, in many different businesses, I'm sure of some very interesting stuff and I'm sure some very stressful stuff. What's the, the overwhelming emotion or thought or feeling that comes to mind for you? Wow, that's a good question. I need to sit with that one for a few seconds. Is that okay? Of course, yeah, of course. The first feeling that comes from mind is actually fear. I don't know why, but that's the first word that bubbles up. And that's actually interesting to me. I don't know why that feeling bubbles up, but so apparently there's been a lot of fear going on within me in, this in all of these different businesses. I think, and now I'm just talking out of that emotion, I think that comes from putting myself outside of my comfort zone a lot forcing myself to get out of my comfort zone so there is a certain touch of fear in most things that I do if I'm doing a podcast like this I'm sharing my thoughts my beliefs I'm saying things that might be controversial I'm answering that question with fear yes that feels rare <laughs> um and it makes me a bit nervous to do those things. So I think that fear is something that's been walking by me through these last 15 years and probably for the next 15 years. And might be one of the reasons why things have succeeded. Because that good friend fear of mine, he, uh, he pushes me <laughs> to keep developing. He doesn't want to be afraid. So then he has to learn stuff and be <laughs> confident in things. Problem is that Eric keeps putting himself in scarier situations. <laughs> so I end up there anyway. But yeah, fear. Interesting. That's that's interesting. Very interesting response. Eric, thank you very much for your time. Um, I'm certainly looking forward to following great.com and I certainly look forward to, to chatting with you again sometime soon. Thank you for having me, Jake. It was a pleasure.